PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the CrickCast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Crick. Welcome to the May issue of Physical Therapy. I'm pleased to announce that the conference that is held by the American Physical Therapy Association in June, now called the NEXT Conference, will be held in Charlotte, North Carolina. The Jules Rostein Roundtable will be held on Friday, June 13th at 3 p.m. The topic that's going to be discussed is interprofessional training, interprofessional education, what are the most effective models, should it occur at all. The other opportunity related to the journal is you can come and have breakfast with us on Saturday, June 14th at 7 a.m. And now let's turn to this really exciting issue. The first article is entitled Outcome Measures for Individuals with Multiple Sclerosis, Recommendations from the American Physical Therapy Association Neurology Section Task Force. This is a profession watch. Kirsten Potter and six of her colleagues from across the country were members of this task force, and they went through 63 different outcome measures with the goal of evaluating psychometric properties of the outcome measures and their clinical utility. They ranked scores from one which they do not recommend to a level four they highly recommend, and when a score gets a four, it means it has excellent psychometric properties in a population of persons with multiple sclerosis that it has excellent clinical utility in that population, meaning that it can be administered in 20 minutes and requires equipment used in the clinic and no copyright payment is required. So I think you'll find it useful. And for other individuals who aren't seeing people with MS, this might be a good model for you to use. The next paper is entitled Upper Extremity Strength Measurement for Children with Cerebral Palsy, a Systematic Review of Available Instruments. Cone, Deckers, and colleagues are from Maastricht University in the Netherlands. This is another aha moment for me because I thought that there were good tools to examine upper extremity strength in children with cerebral palsy. And the authors, after doing a systematic review, came up with some pretty disappointing results. They found very few tools that were of use. This is only of importance if you are trying to improve strength and want to measure strength. If you're looking at the effect of strengthening on a functional measure, you may not have to use these kinds of tools. The next paper is entitled Effectiveness of Mat Pilates or Equipment-Based Pilates Exercises in Patients with Chronic Nonspecific Low Back Pain. This is a randomized control trial. First author is Mauricio Antonio Deleuze, Jr., He and his colleagues are from the City University of Sao Paulo and the George Institute for Global Health in Sydney. The authors concluded that the equipment-based Pilates was superior to MAT in the six-month follow-up for disability and kinesophobia. Now, kinesophobia wasn't a primary outcome measure. So I think that it's more important to look at your facility and what you're capable of purchasing I think this is really an economic decision because the outcome, at least in the small study, didn't strongly favor 
mat versus equipment. The next paper is entitled Therapist's Use of a Graded Repetitive Arm Supplementary Program, otherwise known as GRASP, G-R-A-S-P, Intervention, a Practice Implementation Survey Study. Louise Connell and her colleagues are from the University of Central Lancashire in the United Kingdom and the University of British Columbia. We've had a discussion as editorial board members about the lack of implementation science that has appeared in the journal. There's a lot of work that's gone on in Canada and in England. The question is the length of time that it takes for a discovery in a laboratory to make it into clinical practice. I think the expectation was if clinical practice guidelines were developed, clinicians would say, oh, good, this is just what I want, and I'm going to follow this protocol or these recommendations and treat all my patients the same way. And the reality is that a lot of clinicians aren't even aware that there are new clinical practice guidelines, and when they're presented to clinicians, many clinicians reject them. Many of you have heard of constraint-induced movement therapy, but it hasn't really been incorporated routinely into clinical practice. On the other hand, GRASP was developed in 2010, and to date, it is in 20 centers in Canada and at least eight countries worldwide. So it's interesting to just compare the knowledge translation and try to understand why one took so much longer than the other. The next research report is entitled, From Clinical Expert to Guide, Experiences from Coaching People with Rheumatoid Arthritis to Increased Physical Activity. The first author is Thomas Nesson from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. As we all know, our role as physical therapists has really expanded beyond providing exercises to serving as the role of coach. What's very thoughtful about this paper is it talks about how clinicians learn to promote behavioral changes. I think it may help all of us assume the role of coach. The next paper is entitled, The Capacity to Restore Steady Gait After a Step Modification is Reduced in People with Post-Stroke Foot Drop Using an Ankle Foot Orthosis. The first author is Rose Van Svigum. Rose and colleagues are from Radboud University and from VU University in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. 19 persons with chronic stroke were compared with persons who were able-bodied, and as they walked on a treadmill, obstacles were suddenly released in front of the involved or the paretic limb, and then outcomes were assessed. What the authors demonstrated in a very thoughtful paper is that people with post-stroke foot drop and who used an ankle foot orthosis didn't have the adaptability in walking performance compared to the group who did not have a stroke or an ankle foot orthosis. They were less successful in obstacle avoidance. They had inability to restore their gait after they crossed over the obstacle. Please look at the video that accompanies this paper. It shows how step was varied to look at obstacle avoidance There was a short step strategy or a long step strategy taken by the paretic limb, and I think you'll find it very helpful. The next paper is entitled Association Between Self-Efficacy and Participation in Community Dwelling Manual Wheelchair Users Aged 50 Years or Older. The first author is Brody Sakaki-Bera from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. So individuals who are 50 years or older who have a wheelchair, report low participation levels. 
as few as 8% participate in physical activity in the community compared to almost 50% age-matched individuals who are ambulatory. I'm going to just tell you the bottom line, which is there's a significant component of the variance that's accounted for by lack of self-efficacy, so lack of self-confidence in being able to use a wheelchair in the community. The next paper is entitled Changes of Functional Ability in Patients with Spinal Cord Injury with and Without Falls During Six Months After Discharge. The first author is Jiraborn Wanapaki from Konkan University in Thailand. This is a really thoughtful paper. The authors used a number of outcome measures, including the timed up and go test, the 10-meter walk test, the Berg balance scale, and the 6-meter walk test. What surprised me was the persons who reported the highest number of falls also demonstrated the most improvement in these outcome measures over the six months. And basically, the suggestion is that when they were discharged from the hospital, they were not at their optimal ability, but rather they continued to work at home to achieve a higher level of function. The next paper is entitled Safe Patient Handling Perceptions and Practices, a Survey of Acute Care Physical Therapists. The authors are Brian Okowski and Angela Stolfi from Capital Health in Trenton, New Jersey, and the Rusk Institute of Rehab Medicine in New York. There's a high number of work-related injuries associated with transferring patients in acute care settings. And some states have mandated not only safety programs, but the use of equipment to try and reduce the number of work-related injuries. The authors reported that therapists are aware of safe handling practices and are engaging and using them, and that in places where they're being used, there appears to be some reduction in work-related injury. In our world of regulation, what I found interesting was Table 4, where they report the number of states who have enacted safe patient handling legislation and compared it to the respondents who use safe patient handling regardless of whether or not it's legislated. So I would rather see clinicians adopt the procedures without being legislated. We don't need more regulation. The next paper is entitled Inter-Rater and Intra-Rater Reliability of Common Clinical Standing Balance Tests for people with hip osteoarthritis. First author is Yik Ming Choi. She and her colleagues are from the University of Melbourne in Victoria, Australia. First of all, there's not a lot of attention paid on reliability tests to look at standing balance in persons with hip OA. That's probably not a surprise. The authors used the four-square step test, the step test, the functional reach test, and the time single leg stance test So the authors conclude that one of the four, the step test, is the single best test to use. So I'm all about reducing the number of measurement variables in the clinic to as few as possible. So I think you'll find this article an excellent assistance. The next paper is entitled Lymphedema Functioning, Disability and Health Questionnaire for Lower Limb Lymphedema, Reliability and Validity by Nelly de Vogt and colleagues in Belgium. This is a very nice introduction to a tool that looks at lower extremity lymphedema and its impact not only on functioning, but also on participation. 
So I think that clinicians who are treating patients with lymphedema will find this a very helpful tool to consider. The next paper is called Cross-Validation of the Recumbent Stepper Submaximal Exercise Test to Predict Peak Oxygen Uptake in Older Adults. Ashley Herda and her colleagues are from the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas. So the authors were excited about looking at this total body recumbent stepper as a device to be used instead of the typical cycle ergometer or upper extremity ergometer or other devices that have been used for submaximal testing. So if you have access to a total body recumbent stepper, you might consider the use of it as not only an exercise device, but also a submaximal exercise test device. The final paper is a perspective entitled, A Modern Neuroscience Approach to Chronic Spinal Pain, Combining Pain Neuroscience Education with Cognition-Targeted Motor Control Training. Joe Nice and her colleagues are from the Free University in Brussels and Gantu University. The authors talk about chronic spinal pain, whether it's lumbar or cervical, and the authors present a really nice theoretical framework to consider sensitization and cognitive-based therapy. The authors talk about putting them together to develop a more effective chronic spinal pain management program. I think it will serve as an excellent short paper that pulls together concepts that have emerged in a number of papers over the past few months. So in closing, I think we have new tools to consider and exciting for me There are two papers in this month's journal that talk about limiting the number of outcome measures. So have a great month, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craik, email ptj at apta.org, and be sure to include CraikCast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.